Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 420. Special Yom Kippur edition. This uh, program is dedicated to the merit of Baruch bin Yom and ben Lena and Miriam Baschayesar Altes, Yikusil ben Leir Rochel and Rochel Basliba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todras ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altes. So we're now in the Amasarisimei Tshuva, the 10 days, the 10 day period that begins Rosh Hashanah and concludes on Yom Kippur, a special period, most auspicious time of the year, where the doors are open. What does that mean? That means there are less layers that conceal and diminish the divine consciousness. We all know the concept of tzimtzum and tzimtzumim, concealment and concealments, and the different partitions, parsois, mesochim, that allow the flow of the divine to enter existence for us to be an independent consciousness and not completely subsumed. In the divine consciousness, there needs to be a concealment, just like a teacher, if he just allows his, allows his brilliance to shine forth, we would not be able to contain it. So the, so the teacher has to conceal. The purpose of the concealment is to reveal. But nevertheless, there's a concealment. So throughout the year, the concealments are more intense. When it comes Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and, these ten day period, and this 10-day period, it says, Dirshu Hashem Besiege God. Call out to God. When he's found, Karua, call to him, when he's close. So of course the question is, he's always there. He's always to be found. He's always close. From his perspective. But from our perspective, there are more layers. So during this period of time, we have easier access, and thus we are easier to align ourselves, our physical existence, and our independent consciousness with the divine consciousness, with the purpose of our very existence. And that's how it's called tshuva. What does tshuva mean? Return. Return to what? Return to that original primordial state where we were completely aligned, as it was before Chet Tzadas, before they ate from the tree of knowledge, and it was even deeper before all the tzimtzumim, before all the concealments. Eneid Malvade, nothing but divine. But here, we're able to experience it within and integrate it within our being, within our state of consciousness and awareness. <laughs> So as such, that's why these days have this special power. As the Gemara says, <coughs> that which you require a minion, a quorum, to achieve all year round, you can achieve through a yachid. Even an individual can achieve, as we learn from this verse, Dirshu Hashem Bimotze. And how much more say with a minion during these 10 days? So that's the general structure of these 10 days. They're also called in Chassidus Binyan HaMalchus. The building of Malchus. What's Malchus? A relationship. The relationship between us and God. God as Melech, king, as we crowned him on Rosh Hashanah. But you have to build a relationship. A relationship isn't just a one-time thing. You need to build a structure. In the language of Chassidus, the ten spheres within Malchus. So each one of the ten days of the Aserah builds Chachma of Malchus, Bina of Malchus, Das, all the way till Malchus of Malchus. So if you don't count Das, you count Keser, so it's Keser Malchus. And there are different opinions, whether it's built from the bottom up or from the top down. The Arizal, the Ramak. Tzamech Tzedek has an interesting note that you can't say that uh, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is the, is the end of the process. So you have to say Keser Malchus is either Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. And as such, either way you go, you have to skip, in other words, so the in-between days can be Chochmah, Bina, Das, or Chochmah, Bina, Chesed, Gvura, Teferes, Netzach, Yisait. But Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is the Keser Malchus and the Malchus of Malchus. Okay, so with that, we now discuss Yom Kippur itself. Because these days ultimately prepare us for the Achaz Bashana, that unique, singular day, Achaz, from the word Achaz, as in Yechida the fifth dimension of the soul that is utter unity. As we're saying, what is unity? Where there's no two entities. 
That our deepest part of our most intimate part of our soul connects with the most intimate part of the divine. But to access that, you need to prepare for it. It doesn't happen automatically. Even though it's the day of Yom Kippur has, it's an etzem, an essential power, touching the essence. But obviously, the more we prepare for it, like the Kohen God, the high priest, prepared seven days before he went into the Holy of Holies, the more we can appreciate, the more we can internalize the experience. So these days serve as building up to that ultimate union with the goal of creating such, an, such a uh, bonding, such a seamless connection in Yom Kippur itself, the five prayers of Yom Kippur, which also build from Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, Chai, Yechida, the only day of the year when we pray five prayers, till Ne'ilah, the ultimate, the apex, in order to give us the power the rest of the year to then draw from that and, and do it, draw from that unity into our fragmented and compartmentalized lives. So, many questions have come in about Yom Kippur and connected and related to the high holidays, to prayers. I'm going to try to cover as much as I can and uh, in the time allotted. And here's a good opportunity. ChassidahSupplied.com is a dedicated website for this program and for many other programs, including Tanya Applied, which we began over a year ago, every Mitzvah Shabbos, a half-hour class in Tanya, as well as other resources around Chassidus, including the archives of all the previous programs and the place where you can submit any question completely anonymously. No questions are off-limits. Nothing taboo, as is our um, tagline. So, should we fear Yom Kippur? There is that uh, image. I call it a stereotype, a myth. People tremble. Yom Nerayim. The days of Nerayim. Nerayim Days of fear. That's how it can be translated. Nerayim. From the word Yirah. But is that what God wants? Us to tremble before Him? I mean, is there a comparison? God is the creator. We are the creation. He created us as flawed human beings. So why are we trembling? <coughs> but that's what happens. It could be due, due to a juvenile attitude. It could be due to conditioning, culture. Maybe the simple approach, just be afraid of God. Maybe it's superstition. The word Yira is much more than fear. The word yir is awe, reverence, respect. When you awe of something, yes, there's a certain element of deep respect. It's very different than the fear of the night, or the fear of a criminal, or the fear of being hurt, or the fear of a terrorist. And that's critical to know. Yom Kippur is the day when we come closest to God. Now there's an accountability when that happens. You go into the Holy of Holies, just like the high priest went in every year into the Holy of Holies, as the Rebbe emphasizes that this is the Holy of Holies in Elam Shon and Nefesh. The Holy of Holies in space was the, in the temple. The Holy of Holies in time, Achaz Bashana Yom Kippur. And the Holy of Holies of the Kohen Gadol, the highest level, which is the Kohen Gadol within each of us, the Yechidah within each our soul. So Elam Shon and Nefesh, space, time, and the human being. And the soul all reach the deepest connection possible. That's not a time to have, have fear. It's a time to have awe and respect. And yes, that brings accountability and preparation. And remember also, when you go into such a holy place, every flaw gets amplified. It's like a, a piece of dust on your eyeball. is not like a piece of dust on your finger. That's why the Kedush Kedushim does not tolerate even one blemish. But that's not something to be afraid of. On the contrary, it tells us how holy the place is and how much we have a right to enter there. Now we have to prepare properly. That's the attitude to Yom Kippur. And indeed, somebody interesting captured it and writes the following. I think I finally, I finally understand Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. We were created imperfect, and from time to time we make mistakes. We are not robots. Robots, and we will never be perfect, but the high holidays are a great time to reflect and to make some needed improvements to make us better people and make our lives better. 
if, for example, last year I made a certain mistake 10 times, but now I'm conscious of it, so maybe this year I'll only make this mistake five times, then I feel I've accomplished what Yom Kippur is intended to do. I don't think there's a need for people to be afraid and in dread of Yom Kippur. As long as we take at least one issue or problem in our life and come up with a plan to correct it <laughs> and make it better than we win, then we win. If the problem is serious, then of course we should get advice from a rabbi or an expert or even a friend to help us come up with a plan. I don't fear Yom Kippur anymore. The way it was taught to me in yeshiva was like we all have to be perfect like robots and if we make any small mistake, any an angry Hashem is waiting to zap us with a bolt of lightning. It's not that way at all. Hashem loves us and when we make an effort to improve something in our life, it makes him happy and he even helps us achieve our goals. So I want to wish Rabbi Jacobs and all the viewers happy Yom Kippur. Okay, I second that, but I want to emphasize again the difference between Simcha and Yira. We say the first half of the month is Yom Nirayim, the second half, Sukkot, is Yimei Simcha. Is like the Pasuk says, the Zayar explains this. That's Smeili Tachas Lereshi, the Pasuk says. In comparing us and God to like husband and wife, I am to my beloved and beloved to me. The verse says, Smiley, his right, his left hand is beneath my head, embracing me. And his right hand embraces me as well. So his left hand is under my head. But it's also part of the embrace. Why is it smile? Because smile is gvura. The gilu berada is the expression. We celebrate in awe. You stand before the king. You don't make somersaults. You don't start dancing. But you're definitely happy. But it's an internal one. One out of respect. When it comes, and reverence. When it comes out, you get out of the palace. Then you start celebrating. So simchus sukkis, all the way leading to simchus teda, is the very celebration that was concealed in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So that's why there are two kavim, Avas Hashem, Yiras Hashem. Avas Hashem, loving, is an open, intimate connection. And Yiras Hashem does not mean just distance as in the negative sense. It means respect. It means, oh, we are not God. God is not us. And you recognize that, and you're lifted of form of bittel, of suspending yourself in the face of something so much greater than yourself. Okay. Okay, here's another question, which interesting came in about how to celebrate, how to honor and commemorate Yom Kippur. And it comes, Dear Rabbi, we are not very religious practicing Jews. We are not able to follow all the strict customs of Yom Kippur. So for people like us, what is the most simple, basic way we can participate? Would it be sufficient if we didn't go to the temple but stayed home and fasted from eating and drinking? So I believe the answer to this will become clear as I talk about other aspects of Yom Kippur. I wanted to begin with this because all of us need to figure out how to do Yom Kippur in the most personal and meaningful way. So it's true, people who are used to being used to it and are observant and are accustomed and grew up with it, but their challenge may be easier for them, but their still challenge is not to do it by rote. So I'm glad you're asking the question. Keep remember, remember this. Keep this in mind. <clears throat> Each of us have a relationship with God by the mere fact that we were created by God. And put on this earth means we have a relationship and a mission. People were born into different homes, different families, different backgrounds, and different levels of education. That's what we call giluyim. Let me explain revelation. How, how revealed is that awareness? But everybody has that fundamental connection. It's like children from a parent. They're all children of that parent. Some children may be more aware, may be more knowledgeable, may be more familiar. So the essential connection is there, and that's what we really celebrate at Yom Kippur. The essential connection between us and our Creator. So therefore, do not feel that you're 
somewhat less. Now you have to figure out how to honor that, how to celebrate that, how to commemorate that. And the way you commemorate it is, yes, going to a synagogue is definitely optimal. First of all, with other people, the synergy, the mood, the ambience. If, even if someone can't go to synagogue for whatever reason, that doesn't mean you can't have this full relationship. So I would recommend getting a uh, prayer book, a Yom Kippur prayer book, in English, a language that speaks to you, so you can understand the prayers. Choose a few prayers that, prepare for it, choose a few prayers, and do this and pray it with a heartfelt way, and say, this is my day of connecting. Now, obviously, the more information you have, the better it is. One recommendation I would give is I have a book written called 60 Days, A Spiritual Guide to the High Holidays. The Yom Kippur section, including Yom Kippur prayers, lays out a blueprint that anyone can use, no matter what background, in helping deepen the Yom Kippur experience. Now, the more you can do, the better. Fasting is, yes, one of the requirements. It helps us get away from the materialistic involvements in our life, so-called separating, creating space, so we can completely focus on our souls, which is what Yom Kippur is, a day of soul, and therefore a day of purity. <clears throat> the key thing is not to feel guilty and not to feel inadequate because you can't do everything because you don't know everything. The key is to find a way to celebrate it and to honor it the best possible way that you and your family can. Finding friends that support and know you, you know them and trust each other, also can help. So the more you prepare, the more you acclimate yourself, the more powerful the experience will be. And it's an opportunity. So absolutely take advantage of it. Every person has their flaws. Every person has their shortcomings, mistakes we've made. So it's a day of accountability, again, in the way that you can relate to. And accountability is about relationship. When you really love each other, two people love each other, they're accountable to each other. Not because of guilt, not because of any negative reason. On the contrary, because they want to deepen their relationship. They want to deepen the trust. And that's what Yom Kippur is about. Remember, the original Yom Kippur came after the Jewish people built a golden calf, complete betrayal of God. And Moses prayed for them 80 days until he finally gained a pardon, forgiveness. And that's why after Kol Nidre, the eve of Yom Kippur, we say, God said, I have forgiven them as you have spoken. Forgiveness, hope, that's, the, that's what Yom Kippur is, the holiest day of the year because it's the birth of hope, the birth of forgiveness. That no matter what happens in our lives, even if something breaks or shatters, it's not hopeless. It's not over. You always can repair. You always can return to the quintessential connection that you have with your own soul, with God, with your very purpose. Okay. So now, let us talk about Yom Kippur itself. The question is asked, what does the word holy mean? Does it mean that a place or an object has a higher revelation of God's essence than other objects which would make it more special? So being Yom Kippur's Yom HaKadosh, the holiest day of the year, it's good to understand what the word holy means. Now, the commentaries explain Kedusha also from the word Havdalah, separate. What does it mean separate? We live in a mundane world, and Kedusha means it's separate. It's above and apart from the rest of the mundane world. It's not regular. Even though everything is not regular, even the ordinary is really extraordinary, but there are things where it's more revealed, as we discussed earlier, less layers. So holiness really is the divine purity like he says in Tanya chapter 6, what's Kedusha? Everything that's bottled, that's sublimated, that suspend its own, suspends its own ego and self in the presence of something greater, that's what Kedusha is. So Kedusha is not about self, it's not egocentric, it's the antithesis to self. 
That doesn't mean the annihilation of self. It means it's not all about you. In simple terms. So holiness is a state of awareness that we're part of something greater than ourselves. So if you say, for instance, in the language of Chassidus, that before the Tzimtzum, Eilein Sof, the infinite divine light filled everything. There was no room for anything else. Or in other words, Elikuz Bepshitas, the divine is the, is the given. And Elimus, anything else would be a novelty. Or the words, Ein Eid nothing but Him. That's the deepest level of Gedusha. Why? Because it's a state of complete seamlessness, there's no, two, there's no duality, there's no duplicity, there's no plurality. It's oneness. One reality. If you think about it, that's really the deepest place a person can reach. That's the deepest consciousness that any, anything can be at. That there's nothing other. Look, when a person is really happy, there's a certain seamlessness. When are we not happy? When there's conflicts different voices, different drives. My mind tells me one thing, my emotions tell me another. This one's tugging at me here, this one's tugging there. I'm tempted, I'm seduced, distracted. A oneness is a singularity. And that singularity is both on a cosmic level and on a psychological and emotional level. So that's why Yom Kippur, Achaz Bashana, the unity of the day. That everything is clearly focused. You know exactly what your mission is. You're completely dedicated. Nothing, allowed, nothing can distract you from it. That's the ultimate experience. That is another way of calling what's something called holiness. Now all year round you can also access it. It's there. That inner unity, integral, intrinsic unity in existence is always there. But it's more difficult. Because the distractions are more powerful. There are more layers. And in Yom Kippur the doors open up. And in Yom Kippur itself we progress stage by step by step. And it takes time because we are not used to that. We do live in a fragmented world. And our consciousness is often fragmented. We have many different needs, expectations, demands upon us. Just look at your regular day, your da- daily routine. How many different things do you need to do? Now, you can connect them, but it's usually different forces at work. In addition to the different people and the friends and the marketers and everybody wants a piece of you. Yom Kippur is a day to shut all that off. Completely focus in the deepest possible way. Shabbos has a sense of it, but Yom Kippur is Shabbos Shabbosin. The Shabbos of all Shabboses. That's why, that's the meaning of holiness, and that's why it's so vital in our lives, because it's the purest place, the most innocent place. Children experience it naturally. There's no such thing as duplicity by children. What you see is what you get. The inner and the outer are aligned. Then we learn to be duplicitous. We learn to lie. We learn to deceive. It could be a white lie, but the bottom line is we learn to live double lives. You can smile to someone and then stab that person in the back. The inconsistencies of life, the hostilities, the fragmentations. And Yom Kippur is a day to return to the purest part of who you are, that essential connection. So that leads to the next question. Why did the high priest pronounce the holy tetragrammaton on Yom Kippur and we are not allowed to do so? So one of the key features, the key events, as we repeat it in the Avodah, in the service, that we recount all the events that happened in Yom Kippur in the holy temple, was that the Kohen Gadol, in this awesome moment, and it's repeated several times, would pronounce the holy name Yudke Vovke, the way it's meant to be pronounced. So besides the fact that we don't even know how to pronounce it, you're not allowed to pronounce. So the question is why, let's read a little more. If, I know we are commanded not to say God's name in vain. But why can't we pronounce the Tetragrammaton, the Tetragrammaton, which is the, the name of four letters, Yudke Vovke, during davening? Why can't we say the 72-letter name of God when we need to invoke God's help for positive things? So let's go back to the point of holiness. To be able to say it, even for the high priest, he has to be in a state of Gedusha, of utter Gedusha, utter selflessness. And it's only him, because he has unique power to do so. And he represents all of us. So even though that name is invoked, 
but you have to know who's invoking it. Just like not everyone goes up on Mount Sinai to meet God, Moshe Rabbeinu does, but he represents us all. So one thing, we have to know where we stand. We're not necessarily on that level. And yet there's still an element that he represents us because each of us has a Moshe Rabbeinu within us, a Moses within us, and we have a high priest within us. That's why in this Avedis, the Aveda, which again is a section in the Musaf prayer, that we say and recount the events that happened, and afterwards we say, just as the Kohen Gadol prayed and, was, and, his bless, and his prayers were fulfilled, so too should our prayers be fulfilled because we have an element of the Kohen Gadol, especially today, when there's no temple, physical temple, so there's the Kohen Gadol within each one of us. But in the technical, practical sense, there's one person that represents and has the special preparations and the special soul to pronounce that name. So not pronouncing the name is not necessarily a vote of no confidence. It just means you have to know your place. Just like today in general it says, Kishem It says, comes, the will be pronounced the way it's written. Today, it's is not Nikra. We don't pronounce it the way it's written. We say Adnai. We don't even say it that way, but I'm saying that because that's allowed to say it that way. That's because, as this explains, because the world is not fully aligned with that holiness, with that oneness. So recognizing that is also important and healthy. To assume that you're aligned when you're not is also not correct. So Yom Kippur is the day when we aspire to it, when we know that's the truth and ultimately we will reach that place. And that explains the Kohen Godl and why not everyone. Okay. Why do the Kohanim wear special garments? Why do, why do the Kohanim wear special garments in the temple? So we know that the special garments in general that the, the, the priests wear in the Kohen Godl has his special garments, and especially on Yom Kippur, it's all dressed all in white. Another, another person put it this way, why did the Kahneman and Kedl have to wear these costumes and hats in the Beis Amigdash? It means a little irreverent, as if they were in color war grand sing. Is it not possible for people to serve Hashem while wearing regular clothes? So obviously, as I said before, it's always possible to serve God. As a matter of fact, in Elul it says the king is in the field and the people are dressed in their regular clothes. But why do you dress up in general when you go to a wedding or to a celebration? Shabbos and holidays. It's not silly costumes, God forbid. It's, we are physical human beings, and when we dress a certain way, just as when we eat certain foods and we have certain behaviors, it puts us in that mood. And it puts us in that state of being, on a very basic level. I'll say, Lahavdil. You ask a question, why do baseball players or football players wear uniforms? Why does an astronaut wear a particular outfit? And you see this all over the world. This has nothing to do even with anything divine or godly. Because there's a certain respect for whatever it is that you're following. Part of soldiers wear certain uniforms. Besides that, the uniform itself is important for their work. But there's also a certain representation, a certain commitment involved. In our case, Lahavdil, it's far deeper than that. It says in the Torah, the big day kahuna was Lekovit, to honor and for the beauty because we do believe in external beauty only when it's representing inner beauty, not just external, superficial. So the garments reflect the day. On a day like Yom Kippur, we wear white, representing the whiteness, the purity, the innocence of the day. And the same is true with other garments at different times. That's why you find in Judaism, we beautify mitzvahs, even physically. I say, for no. Should be a beautiful Sefer Torah, a beautiful mezuzah, a beautiful esrig, pre eitz hadar. Why does it have to be beautiful? The main thing is the spiritual part of it, because the point is to integrate the beauty, spiritual beauty and purity into the physical beauty and purity. And that's what the garments represent. <clears throat> so during the year, there are times where regular clothing, so-called mundane clothing, weekday clothing, is fitting, and that's how you serve. And then there are special days. We're talking about aligning ourselves to a deeper holiness, to a deeper unity, as we've been discussing. So it also reflects itself in the garments. How is the Seder Aveda relevant to us today? 
going back to the Avaidah, the Avaidah is the service in the temple. Especially, we read, from the beginning of creation. The Seda Avaidah begins from the beginning of creation and tells the whole story until it gets to the high priest going into the temple. Very beautifully contextualized. Because the whole purpose of existence is ultimately connected to the divine. So, from the beginning of time, that the Veda tells us that entire story, which is really the story of our lives. We're born in this world, created. We go through our own metamorphosis and our transitions and our growth with the goal of ultimately entering into the holy holies of our own soul, connecting to God in the purest possible way. So that's the most basic part of the, just explain the, the, the most basic way of personalizing it. Dear Rabbi, can you provide some insight into the Seder Aved of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur? How is it relevant today? And what should we be thinking when reading it? It seems very ancient and it does not seem to be very meaningful today. <laughs> Please clarify. Thank you. So, as I said, the first point is, it's your story. Think of it as your story of your life. You live in a material world and you want to spiritualize that material world to fulfill the purpose of making a dirabitachtenim, a home for the divine in this world. Yom Kippur is the epitome of that. Aveda means to serve. Aveda also means to work. Ibud Eris. To strain yourself. Not just get, to get out of your comfort zone. And not just go with, by routine and habit. But to actually exert yourself. And become a more refined human being. So the Aveda captures that. Every detail. Here's not the place to go through all the details that we say in the Aveda. But if you take that... That, that axiom, you take that perspective, then you can find, you'll find the relevance. In my book, 60 Days, I talk about different aspects of the Aved in this context. Whether it's dictators that the Kayan God brought, which is the incense, the beautiful aroma, reflecting the deeper spiritual connections that we have and turning it into a beautiful environment. Whether it's the name, the, pronouncing the holy name, which we don't pronounce, but we Stand and we, and, and, and we fall kaidim, mishtachvim, v'neflim al p'neim, as we say, and Yom Kippur. We bow all the way down to the ground. The only time of the year we do so. Rosh Hashanah once, but we do it Yom Kippur several times. When we hear the holy name, it's a representation that your whole being is prostrating itself and subjugating itself. Bittal, as we've been discussing. And the same with the other details. The Marekayim, beautiful prayer after the king comes out of the Holy of Holies and he's glowing, his splendor, like a rainbow, is also our splendor as we purify ourselves and connect. The preparations of the high priest as he purifies himself before he says the holy name. And on and on. Of course, there's also the sadder part afterwards when we say El Eskara, remembering the ten martyrs. So besides remembering those painful moments, which is also not just to remember pain, it's in order to grow out of it, to look at our own, some of our challenges, some of our difficulties, and recognizing on this holy day that we don't ignore that, we also elevate it. And I'm sure if you apply yourself, you'll be able to find more aspects of personal relevance. How do... How, can Rabbi Jacobson please explain how the five prayers of Yom Kippur correspond to the five parts of the Neshama according to Chassidus? Thank you. Yeah. So, in Lukut the end of Pasha Pinchas, the Alter Rebbe says it explicitly and it's explained in different places. So every day of the year we pray three times. Shachis bin Chamayrif, corresponding to Nefesh Ruach Neshama. These are the three conscious sections of the soul, Chabad, Chagas, Nehi, the cognitive, the emotional, and the behavioral. On Shabbos and Yom Tov, we add Tfilis Musaf, Chaya, the transcendent. Because on those holy days, there's another energy that we can access. Now remember, the soul has that level all the time. But we're talking about accessing it, accessing it. And Yom Kippur is the only day of the year the fifth prayer is added, Ni'ila, which is Yechida. So each of the prayers correspond to each of these souls. So when we are praying, what we're doing is accessing that connection between our neshama, our nefesh, which would be more a biological, behavioral part of our lives, 
ruach, the emotional part of our lives, and neshama, the intellectual, cognitive part of our lives. Now, in the order, shachus bin chemayrev, so it would seem to apply, that shachus is nefesh, ruach, neshama, but you could also go mayrev, being the night before, that begins the nefesh, with shachus being ruach, and mincha being neshama. But you can also explain that shachus, the, largest, the longest prayer is neshama. But I don't want to go into these details right now, but bottom line is, they all overlap, of course. So Yom Kippur, most likely, nefesh would be the Mayrif prayer the night before. The next morning, shachus would be ruach. Uh, Musaf would be neshama. Mincha would be chaya. And, and Ne'ila would be Yechida. But I've seen also explained that Mincha, like it is being that's part of the regular prayer, would be Neshama, and Musaf would be Chaya, like it is Shabbos and Yontif, and Yechida would be Ne'ila. They're all building up. Because you can't just enter the most intimate place in any area of love or connection if you don't first prepare yourself. So it's like climbing a ladder. Just like in davening itself, we know there are four stages. In shachris itself, the four lo- rungs of the ladder, sulam mutzav the ladder that stands on the ground, vereshi magia shamaima, and the top of the ladder reaches heaven. So that's also a journey just even in one prayer. I elaborate on this as well in 60 days if you want more information on this topic. <coughs> but essentially, as a person becomes more connected to their soul, they can reach deeper levels of neshama all the way to the level of yechida, as Yom Kippur concludes with Ne'ilah, the high point, where a person is ready to stand with Mesiris Nefesh, as he brings there from the Shalom, completely committed, completely one with God. Okay. Why is there a custom... To go to a mikveh erev Yom Kippur, what does it represent? If it, was a pri- if, if it was private and one person at a time went in, it wouldn't be as strange as a hundred men standing around in one room. What can someone who's afraid or uncomfortable going into a public mikveh do as a substitute to accomplish the same spiritual effect and be able to enter into Yom Kippur properly? So mikveh is the utter experience of bitl. In general mikvah, especially the mikvah before Yom Kippur, is similar to the mikvah, the ritual immersion, the ritual bath that the Kayan Gadol did before he, before he went to the Holy of Holies. What happens when a person goes in the mikvah? They get rid of all their garments, their outer layers, and they go and completely submerge themselves from head to toe. Explains the Mitla Rebbe in Siddur that bitl, habitl, is the same letters as tefillah, as immersion as going, entering, submerging into a mikvah. So it's essentially bitl. What's the ultimate bitl? That you're not yourself, you're completely submerged in what? In water, which represents the divine. Me'a das as the Rambam says, the pure holy water. So go, talking about preparing ourselves to go into that holy place, so that sense of oneness, going into water is exactly that symbolism. Minamai mishisu, we say about Moshe. He was drawn from water. In the words of Chassidus Kabbalah, from the hidden worlds. Land, the mammals, are not submerged. They're independent entities. They need to breathe. But fish and water are completely submerged. The utter bitl. And that's why we go to the mikveh. Among many other reasons. There's also the reason you go to the mikveh to purify yourself simply from anything that's impure. But, but how do you do so through submerging in something greater than yourself? It's not about you, because remember, anything we may have indulged in, or any impurity, is coming from self-pleasure, from self-indulgence. So mikveh is the counterforce by submerging yourself into something greater than you are. As far as being comfortable, look, those that go to the mikveh and are completely focused don't even notice anyone else, and that's what they do. The problem is there's only that many mikvehs, and it's difficult to have a mikvah for one, one per person. If you're having that difficulty, go very early or find a place where there's less traffic, so to speak. And, uh, and that's what I would recommend.
Um, some people have the custom to go three times on Yom Kippur, Erev Yom Kippur, that is. It's interesting, on Yom Kippur itself, we don't go to the mikvah. You're not supposed to immerse yourself in water, but you're supposed to prepare yourself before Yom Kippur for that experience. Okay. Why do we have fast days when we are not supposed to punish our bodies? Dear Rabbi Jacobs, in the days of old, a certain type of way that people did was called Yisurim, afflictions, where they take off their clothes and lay down in the snow and ice or do other things that cause pain and discomfort in order to reach a higher spiritual state. I was told the Rebbe said the practice of Yisurim was something from the past and we don't do it anymore. And the today, Avedah of today's area is through Simcha, through joy. Indeed, that's from the Baal Shem Tov. The Alter Rebbe brings it in Tanya, that we don't do that. Even though there was a custom by some, not by all, there was. That, that today, that's no longer the work to be done. My question is, if that's the case, then why do we still have fast days and why do we need to fast Yom Kippur and bring discomfort, discomfort into the observance of Yom Kippur if we could and should accomplish what we need via Simcha instead, via joy instead? Another person asks a related question. I find fasting to be counterproductive to being reflective and introspective. I find that when I'm hungry, all I think about is how to distract myself from feeling the hunger. What should I do on Yom Kippur when we are supposed to be reflective but we are also not supposed to eat? Okay. So first of all, what the Baal Shem Tov said and what the Rebbe quotes and what is known is that we don't, the afflictions that people, that individuals did in the past is not for today. Not talking about Dvarim Daraisa. We're not talking about Taira sanctioned affliction, so to speak. Talking about extra things that were done, that that should not be done today. And today, a fast, if somebody wants to fast for a particular sin, better give Tzedakah instead of it. Charity. But there are things that Titus says to do so. Namely Yom Kippur. And other fast days as well. But Yom Kippur is obviously the ultimate. And the reason is, the Hei Nuim, they're called actually Nuim, like afflictions. We know it's not like Tisha B'av, it's not due to sins, in the sense of the destruction of the temple. It's due to becoming holier. When we're involved in eating and drinking, and physical activities and the physical pleasures of all these five different activities that Yom Kippur we're not supposed to do, it means we're still involved in the material. And Yom Kippur, we want to absolve ourselves. We want to suspend. We want to free ourselves as much as possible from material immersion. So the goal really would be that you shouldn't even feel hunger. That you're so such a soulful place, you don't even notice that you're hungry. Look, there are people who are very, very busy with their work, Lahavdil. They don't even realize they're hungry because they're so consumed with it whatever it is that they're doing. That's the optimal. But, there's a, but, but obviously not everyone's on that level, even though we should be shooting for that. So there's another aspect to actually feel. Yes, okay, so you feel the pain. You feel the pain, and that's meant to be a reminder that you're not a physical human being. Or a reminder that you're too physical, and that's why you feel it. So that's also an awareness. And since Yom Kippur is a day that we are looking to atone, so part of atonement is becoming a more soulful person and also becoming less materialistic. It causes pain, fine. That's what it does. But remember, Yom Kippur is not expecting something that's not possible. Someone who cannot fast due to health and other reasons, obviously they're all different ways. Anything that's dangerous. So we're not discussing that at all. We're talking about someone who's able to, to fast, and that fine, let them, let them remind them how food is so much part of us and how we can grow from that. It shouldn't be such a dominant force in our lives. The goal is not to fast all the time. Even though Allah says when Mashiach comes, it says, they won't be eating and drinking. Because the Rebbe explains we won't need it. Because the body will not need food to sustain itself. Yom Kippur is a taste of that. So all that is how we understand. Now as far as Counterproductive? Well, this is the work we need to do. The work we need to do is to try to be as soulful and spiritual as possible. Sometimes that comes with a little pain, the pain of feeling deprived from being able to eat. 
And I would say as adults, we should put our minds when a person is in that place to daven stronger, to focus more on spiritual connection, on atoning, on forgiveness, and all the other themes and important goals that Yom Kippur is there to achieve. If you can stand in a state of Yechida, even for a short time, by Ni'ilah, which is already the end of the fast, the end of the day, that should be so powerful. And I remember when the Rebbe would dance, Napoleon's March, at the end of Ni'ilah, I don't think at that moment anyone felt hungry, even though it was a long day of fasting. Because there was a certain exuberance, and literally ecstasy, of feeling the celebration after a long day of purifying ourselves. So you see there are moments that you could achieve that, even, even though physically your body is hungry, but when you achieve a certain state of transcendence, you don't feel it. And if you do feel it, so there's more work to be done. That's how I would uh, frame it. As you see, the questions keep coming. I don't know if I've been able to cover everything. But we'll try our best. Okay, let's just, I'll just continue going here. Okay. If the original Yom Kippur, was supposed to be an atonement for the sin of the golden calf, and therefore we say the energy of the day is mercy and forgiveness, but if those who participated in the golden calf weren't truly and completely forgiven because it was ruled by God that they can't enter Israel and must die in the desert, why are we so confident that on Yom Kippur we will be forgiven and given a clean slate and a fresh start? How are we so sure that we will be completely forgiven? So first of all, let's just deal with the actual technical part of this. The golden calf sin was completely forgiven on Yom Kippur. Moshe gained that forgiveness. The reason they stayed in the desert was because of the Chetam Eraglin, which was another sin. The sin of the scouts who came and instigated, Dibas instigated, spoke negatively about Israel, and the Jews said they don't want to go. So God granted their request tragically. So that's just on a technical level. But regardless, just because Mashiach didn't come last year, and not everything was finished in the work that we need to do in this dark Golas, Despite the Rebbe said, the Berurim are finished, but still there's work to be done. The Rebbe said, can do whatever you can to reveal it, to open our eyes. So that doesn't mean that because yesterday it wasn't finished, that's why tomorrow can't be finished. So it's true that after they were forgiven for the Chet Egel, Mashiach didn't come yet. So it means there was more work to be done. And that's our attitude. Yom Kippur has the power to completely forgive everything. The fact that you look back and see one second, maybe a person died prematurely or there was a holocaust, that's why maybe I won't be forgiven. It's not a Torah way of thinking. There's mysteries to life. We don't understand everything. I'm not suggesting they weren't forgiven. Maybe they were forgiven. And there were other things that God had in mind in his mysterious choreography and plan. But regardless, Yom Kippur is a day which says, you have, the access, you have the capacity to reach the Yechidah, to the essence of it all, and come, gain complete forgiveness. Return. Remember, we're returning to the original state. It's not something new. It may be new for us, but it's not fundamentally new. You're returning to who you were and who you are fundamentally. Do we have a nuclear option in our davening that is so strong it guarantees Hashem will forgive us on Yom Kippur? If so, what is that, that option and should we use it right away or only as a last resort? Okay, well, the nuclear option most likely is the Yud Gimel That's what Moshe Rabbeinu gained when he was on the mountain, that God finally revealed to him the 13 attributes of divine compassion and mercy. And we do indeed invoke it, Yom Kippur, many times. But like anything, the more you prepare, then when you use that, it's always much more powerful. Think of an example. Maybe it's a, a weird example, example of war. First you soften the defenses of the enemy, and then you drop your big bomb. Here, God forbid, there's no enemy, except if you think of the prosecuting angels as the enemy. 
But meaning that when a person is dealing with that, that's why we bring a carbon teda. One of the reasons we say gratitude, thank you, in a way it's like you say thank you first and then you bring a carbon that forgive, of forgiveness. You don't ask for forgiveness until you don't do something nice to the one that you may have hurt. Even with God we say that. And definitely on Yom Kippur that may be a, a component. That's why we don't just say the Yud Yom and that's it. There's a whole long prayers. And it's a relationship. If you, God forbid, hurt someone you love deeply, you just go, even a very sincere nuclear option called, I forgive, thank you, forgive me please. And it's sincere and the person can even relate to it. It's very different than when they see that you've changed and that you worked on it and it's an entire day dedicated from the evening through the morning through the afternoon. And then you come to the Yud Gimel Midas It's a whole different experience. Okay. What is the connection between Yema Kippurim and Purim? So in Tikkun Yizayir it says Kippurim is like Purim, which only compounds the question that Yom Purim is, is, is greater than Yom Kippurim. Yom Kippurim is Achaz Bershana. We know there's no day like Yom Kippur, and yet it's like Kippurim. And Chassid decides it. As one person put it, the Rebbe has said on many occasions that Yom Kippur is Kippurim. Well, the Rebbe is quoting the Tikkun Yizayir, quoting Tayra'er, the Alter Rebbe brings it. And, only, and it's only a hint of the joy of Purim. I don't see the connection between these two days. I see Yom Kippur as a very serious day of judgment, and I see Purim as a joyous day. Am I missing something here? So when you look up the sources, and as they're explained, you'll see they both reach Yechida. And they both are through Geidel. Purim is Purim, Zeha Geidel. Purim Hua Geidel was throwing lots. And on Yom Kippur, also they threw lots of the Seh Lazazel, the Seh that was thrown over the cliff, and the said that was brought as an offering. Well, lots represents something that's super rational. So both of them reach the Yechidah level, and Purim is also one day, Achas. The difference is Purim is celebrated through festivities and through eating and celebrating and a Suda and a meal. Yom Kippur through the opposite. So Chassidus explains that the power of Yom Kippur, which reaches this highest level on Purim, which came later, Remember, Purim was actually a way of affirming Matan Teda. It says, Kiblu, Kimu Bikibla Yehudin, Kimu Masha Kiblu Kfar. Because by Matan Teda, they could still argue that the Medor, Rabbala, Raisa, they can argue that they were forced. God put the mountain over them and essentially gave them an ultimatum. Did they really completely exper- ex- ex- accept the Teda their own volition? But Purim, they accepted it entirely. So Purim is the conclusion of Matan Teda. Now, Matan Teda was at Sinai. And that too was, came, was challenged and betrayed through the golden calf. And Yom Kippur is the affirmation of Matan Teda. Yom Chasunos is the conclusion when they received the second tablets. So there you have the connection of Purim and Yom Kippur, because Purim concludes it. But Purim now, which came later, and now we can elevate the world through transforming the material. But that's only after you have Yom Kippur. So there's an element of Purim that's higher than Yom Kippur, because you have the same experience, the same energy but this time through, through matter. But no one ever says that after you have Purim, you don't do Yom Kippur, God forbid. Yom Kippur is the highest, is the highest, the highest day of the year, the holiest day of the year. Because Yom Kippur connects us in a way, like I said, beyond anything that's matter, the deepest, deepest connection. And then the goal is to bring that into the material, which is Purim. Why do we say Kol Nidre after we already did Hataras Nidorim Er Rosh Hashanah? Why do we need to know vows again in Yom Kippur with the Kol Nidre prayer? So first of all, the, let's talk about why do we need to know vows altogether. Most of us don't relate to that. What do you mean vows? The Torah talks about, obviously, in Parshamata, it's a whole thing about Nedarim, taking a vow, annulling a vow. Well, the word Nedar means to bind yourself to something. If you want to experience the holiness and the oneness, the unity that we're talking about in Yom Kippur, the essence of yourself, you have to unbind yourself from the other things that you connected with, whatever vow that may be. 
Now we know Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are part of one experience. Sometimes actually Yom Kippur is called Rosh Hashanah. But it's definitely the beginning of the process and the conclusion on Yom Kippur. Gemar Ksiva Vechasima Teva. Gemar Ksiva Teva. The writing and the sealing. So that's why both before Rosh Hashanah we already begin to free ourselves, to experience renewal, to free ourselves from our vows. But then it's still more of a custom. Yom Kippur is considered to be a more powerful way of annulling the vows. So whatever vow that either was not completely annulled or more subtle ones that in a way you may have forgotten Rosh Hashanah, so Yom Kippur we do it again to make sure that it's uh, all covered. Even if it's exactly the same thing, it doesn't hurt because it's so not easy to give up the things we bind ourselves to. So both of them have the same concept, done differently. For Rosh Hashanah is like a Besdin, a few people come together. Kol Nidre is the Chazan saying it, and we all say it together in the opening of Yom Kippur. In general, when it comes to these things, Chassidus asks the question why we say Tachnun or Slachlanu in Shemineser, after Shemineser. After all the prayers, aren't we already moved away from our sins? So it says when you reach a higher level, then you start sensing things that were subtly there that you didn't know or notice before. Or you weren't ready yet to address them. It's like when you climb a mountain, you start seeing things you didn't see. We mentioned before, the more holier it gets, every subtlety, even the, the piece of dust in your eye becomes very irritating. But if you're not there yet, you don't feel it. Yet. So the same thing you can say Yom Kippur is a higher level. So whatever the vows that we had nulled before Rosh Hashanah, now we're nulling even more subtle ones and more deeper ones to enter the holy day of Yom Kippur. Okay. If regular laymen have the power to form a court on Er Rosh Hashanah, for Atoris Nadarim, for annulling the vows, why can't three, ten, or even seventy-one people randomly get together and form a court and declare a ruling that Mashiach must come immediately? By all means, we should definitely do it. The Rebbe mentioned it at different times in different contexts, but by all means, and no one stops from anyone from doing that, it may be fulfilled, and we talk you should have Mashiach. Our rabbi was discussing why we don't bless the new month of Tishrei. He said some say it's to confuse the Satan, so he won't know the high holidays are coming. But the better explanation is that Hashem himself blesses the month of Tishrei, and therefore the Satan's confusion is that he's overwhelmed and says if Hashem himself is blessing the month, I might as well not even show up and try to read accusations against the Jewish nation. My question is, if that's the case that the Satan gives up and surrenders a few days before Tishrei even begins, why, then why do we need a Yom Kippur? <clears throat> so first of all, we're dealing here with a cosmic experience and a personal one that's more than just a one-time thing. As I mentioned before, it's a relationship. In the context, the Jews that build a golden calf, Moshe Rabbeinu needed 80 days to ask for forgiveness and gain forgiveness with all the different stages that he went through. So the same thing we also need to go through stages. We don't just do one thing. You could say, well, once we've prayed Rosh Hashanah, why do we need Yom Kippur altogether? <coughs> Not just regarding the Satan, the Sultan. Because a relationship is not a one-time thing. It's rebuilding a full connection. And there's the Nefesh part, the Ruach part, the Neshama part, Chai Yechida, as we discussed so whatever we do, Rosh Hashanah, whether it's not blowing the Shefer, Erev Rosh Hashanah, which is also for this reason, or the blessing, we don't bless the new month. We're trying to neutralize the negative prosecuting forces, but also trying to bring more holiness in. And as such, even though, yes, we may have fooled the Satan in a certain way, but nevertheless, there are other prosecuting forces. And the Sutton himself could also wake up and say, one second, okay, you fool me now. Now comes Yom Kippur. I see some things are happening. I mean, however you explain it, the bottom line is we have to maintain our vigilance 
and do all our efforts possible and not take anything for granted. So it's not a one-time thing. You could also say, since last year we already fooled the Sutton, why is he fooled again this year? Because it's a new energy and it's a new world. And remember, then the, then the Sutton's intention is also a good one. L'shem Shemayim Niskam. God appointed him to be the prosecutor. He has a role to play. A role what? To make us more accountable. To help us discover and be more sensitive to ourselves. Now he doesn't like his job. But he has a job to play. And our role is to constantly counter that force by bringing more Kedusha, more holiness, and more purity into our lives. And finally, in the context of Yom Kippur, two more questions. Why do we say Baruch Shem, Kved Machus loudly on Yom Kippur? And silently throughout the year. Is it because we stole the prayer from angels and they will up, be upset if they hear us say it? If we stole it, why are we even allowed to say it? It's a mitzvah, a mitzvah that's coming from a sin, from stealing. What's different in Yom Kippur that allows us to say it loudly? Okay, very good. So, let's explain this. When Moshe was on the mountain, he heard Baruch Shem, and he brought it back to the people. What means stole it? He didn't steal it. This is a praising God. It's not exactly a monopoly owned by the angels. But it meant it was a prayer that belonged on that domain, Yitzira or Bria, wherever you explain where the angels dwelled. And it was not for this world. And Moshe Rabbeinu saw an opportunity. Because this is the role of angels, to sing God's praises and actually to be a role model for us of how to connect to the divine. But yet, since it's their domain, there's a certain element of respect, so we say it quietly. Not so much about offending them or because um, they'll be upset, but it's their Aveda. So we say it quietly. Yom Kippur, we are on the level of angels. And the angels are celebrating with us. We're all together reaching these higher levels. And as a matter of fact, it says that angels don't say praise above until we say, They don't say um, praise above until they hear the praise below. So are we connect. Our Baruch Shem is said loudly. Now you could say, one second, what's the difference? Angels don't hear our thoughts. Because they're the level of Dibur, they're not the level of Machshavah. Chassidus explains. But on Yom Kippur, we express that angelic power, dressing in white and other examples of it that, that manifest that, that malachim power, and they join with us as we say, Baruch Shem Kveid Machus which is Yechudet Tata. Shema is absolutely a prayer given to us. Yechudet Elah. This is connecting to the highest levels of the divine, but also manifesting in a way that can be expressed also, Yehudah Tata, in this world, that's what angels relate more to the world. But, and we draw it from the angels. And Yom Kippur, we join together and say it out loud together in, in, in that sense. Okay. One final question, which I shall do right now. And I see I'm not going to be able to cover everything, but hopefully this did a, some service, some justice, I should say. Yeah, there's a lot of things I wanted to cover. What should I say? Um, here's this question. If, all, if we all wore clothing with black stripes like zebras and huddled together camouflaged in Yom Kippur, would the accusing angels not be able to single us out for prosecution? That is probably the reason why we wear a talus. No. I was told in Yeshiva that some prayers are in Aramaic because the angels don't understand in Aramaic, understand Aramaic and they can't interfere with our davening meaning the prosecuting angels. If that's the case, why aren't all prayers in Aramaic? How can we wish someone to a happy new year with abundant parnosa, livelihood translated into Aramaic so the angels can't interfere? Well, the answer lies in what I just discussed about Baruch Shem. About the black stripes with the zebras, I've never seen that. Interesting analogy. Um, that You could say the talus in general camouflages. The point, however... Regard, I have to look up, that, that I need to look up, or if anybody has any comments on that, please share with me. Um, yes, there are, there are forces 
like Zelo Umaza, always ready to counter the positive forces. That's the way God created it, and it's for the good of a person. Like the example of the Sutton, the example Tanya brings the end of chapter 9, the Moshe of the Zayna, where a king hired someone to try to tempt his son in order to bring out illicit his deeper strengths to resist. That makes, it, makes him even stronger. So any resistance in life makes you stronger. As such, as such, because they're such prosecuting forces, so we're told certain things, camouflage, like we said before about the blowing of the shofar before Rosh Hashanah, the, bl- the blessing of the new month, not to bless the new month, the Shabbos, before Rosh Hashanah, Tishrei, and other such examples. But that doesn't mean that all of our lives are meant to be camouflaged. There are certain areas where the Torah designates where it's worthwhile doing. There are many areas where we want to demonstrate our strength. Like just like the fact we wear white, the Torah says that this nation knows the personality of God. Uf That what? That we know that even before we go into judgment, we're, we're definitely going to be exonerated, be innocent. Why, why are we flaunting that? Because there's another element. The angels also, even the prosecuting angels, know the value of a neshama. So why each case? That we need to go and discover deeper. But to say that it's all or nothing. So in certain areas, symbolically, we'll do things that are more camouflaged. Like some of the prayers in Aramaic, or some things we say quietly. Or in different cryptic ways. But then there are times when we're very proud. And let the angels, and let them all see what we're capable of. What kind of nation, the nation like the Jewish people. There's no such singular. Our job is to bring the achas, the unity, the, the essential, integral, and absolute seamless unity into this material, fragmented existence. Hashem achod in a world of details. And that is ultimately the purpose of existence, and it's epitomized when we come in Yom Kippur. And with that, let us conclude this special Yom Kippur edition, even though... There's more to cover, but time is time. I wish everyone a gemar chesimateva. Once and for all, be the year of shnas geula. Ployes gedelis, or simcha peides gather. The different acronyms people are saying about tovshim pe gimel. The great wonders of the geula mitis vashlema. Gemar chesimateva. Bona chayim azena revicha. Children, healthy children, abundant parnasa livelihood, all in good health long, healthy years, and fulfilling the purpose, the yechida, that manifests in the chaya and the nefesh ruach neshama of our lives. And finally, bringing the gula amitiz v'ashleimon will be v'hoye b'yemahu yiyah Hashem achad u'shmoyachad. A good gebench to yar. The next two weeks, because of Yontif, we won't have this program, but we will continue, mitz Hashem, v'yakav al-chadarke, at the conclusion, after Sukkot, when we bring all the awe, of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur into joy all the way to the apex of Simchas Teir. A good gebench yara and a lebedik and a freilach yara of Geula. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.